Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Trump administration seems to be exceptional exponents of first order effects. Why are they doing that? I had written this thread where this where I talked about what you could think of as the various effects of COVID-19 on international cooperation. I said that there could be three types of effects. There could be zero order effects, first order effects, second order. So zero order effects is is basically international cooperation over COVID-19. So, for example, the whole W World Health Organization dispute about did the World Health Organization provide enough information when um, should the U.S. hold back funding because it's too cozy with China? That is a breakdown of international cooperation directly due to and directly over COVID-19. You're presupposing that there was actually international cooperation before COVID-19. <laughs> that's a fair, that's a fair, that's a fair critique. Uh, you could say that there was at least more international cooperation. Um, if you're focusing on the area of health, global health, you could say that there was at least more cooperation with, say, SARS um, or N1H1, some of the previous uh near global, or I guess they did actually reach global pandemic levels, but much more cooperation in terms of trying to mitigate it than what we're seeing now with COVID-19. Is it not the case that all COVID-19 has done is expose fault lines that were already there? 100%. 100%. Yeah. That, and that's something that goes back to a point we raised before on the podcast, which is that is COVID-19 bringing, is, is COVID-19 leading to some sort of shift in the international system or sort of changes in the international system? And my argument has been no, it's just highlight changes that have already been underway, competition that's already been underway, say, between the United States and China. So it's not that COVID-19 is creating these new forms or brand new forms of, say, lack of cooperation. And so what I was getting at with these different orders of breakdown of cooperation was just the different ways of thinking about when you're observing a lack of cooperation and you're trying to say, well, what, what role does COVID-19 play? Well, if it's a lack of cooperation over what to do about COVID-19 directly, whether it's within the WHO or it's trying to coordinate on a vaccine, that I would call a zero order. Like that is directly on COVID-19. First order is policies that aren't directly about, say, a vaccine, WHO, they're not directly about health, but you're pursuing them under the rationale that it'll help with COVID-19 prevention and mitigation. And the main example of this, and going to your question, would be travel restrictions or immigration restrictions of saying that, well, we need to prevent people from entering the country because they're bringing this disease in. And you know, Trump has used this as justification for alterations in visas. He's used this for justification. I mean, he's given many justifications for building the wall. This is now the latest justification he's giving for building the wall. And so that would be what you would call kind of first order, where 
I am now going to shut down trade or I'm going to shut down immigration or I'm going to build a wall and that's going to disrupt, of course, trade cooperation between the two of us. And I'm going to do it because I think, or at least I'm justifying it. That's a very, that's a key distinction. Do I really think it's going to prevent the spread of COVID-19 or am I just using COVID-19 to justify it? But that's what we mean by our first order effect. First order effects, particularly in national security, have always been present. National security has been hijacked many, many times since 9-11 to push other agendas. Absolutely. This is, goes back to, I think, a conversation we had earlier on the podcast about securitization here, right? And the idea that you can take something that may be on its face, or at least when you first look at it, you would say this isn't a national security issue. And then you can turn it into a security issue by how you talk about it. Immigration would be an example of that. Is immigration really a national security issue? Is it instead an economic issue, a cultural exchange issue? There could be a lot of different issues. But if you, depending on how you talk about it, you could make it a national security issue. And of course, the Trump administration has chosen to do that. War on drugs being a key example of that. And a main reason why immigration became much more security issue, or at least people became more open to viewing it as a security issue, was because of 9-11 and concerns about, you know, was there a breakdown in our immigration system that allowed the terrorists to come into the United States, for example? So yes, this is not a new thing. First order effects have been very common. But the one area you really focused on in your thread was second order effects. Where are we going with second order effects? Second order effects is so, whereas zero order is cooperation or a breakdown of cooperation over how to address COVID 19 itself, first order effects is breakdown of cooperation in another area under the rationale that this is a response to COVID 19. Second order effects is a breakdown in cooperation in another area that at least at first seems to have nothing to do with COVID-19. The key example of this that I give, I give two examples in the thread. One example I really like, the first one I give, is the oil price war that broke out between Russia and Saudi Arabia back in March and April. And this was where Saudi Arabia and Russia were trying to reach an agreement on constraining their production in order to raise oil prices. And that agreement broke down. Saudi Arabia ended up just producing a bunch of oil. The price of oil just dropped dramatically. On the, when you first look at that, you'd say, well, what does that have to do with COVID-19? It, it has to do with oil prices, has to do with OPEC, or in this case, OPEC plus, you know, this group of countries trying to reach agreement on oil production. And that's something we've seen a lot. Well, the reason why it's a second order effect is, why was it that Saudi Arabia and Russia were trying to reach an agreement to prop up oil prices? Well, the reason why they were trying to reach this agreement was because COVID-19 was leading to this slowdown in the Chinese economy, and they were projecting that this slowdown was going to continue into the future, thereby bringing down oil prices. So that's the second order effect, that COVID-19 leads to one thing that then in turn leads you to behave differently in another area. The other example of it that I give is the recent border dispute, violent border between India and China. Again, this has been an ongoing dispute. This isn't new. But why did it suddenly flare up again? Well, I argue that it's also this second-order effect, that because of the 
harm domestically and even to domestic credibility that the Chinese government experienced, that leads to a desire to, well, there's debate about exactly what the desire is. Some people would say there's a desire for what you would call diversionary war, which is, okay, you all are upset about this, but we'll cause a national security crisis to take your attention away from it. But some other people, and I think this is more credible, just said the Chinese government needs to do something to reestablish its credibility. So one way to do that is, hey, we have this longstanding border dispute with India. Let's go ahead and take care of that. Let's resolve that. Let's actually take a measure, take an aggressive action against India to kind of restore national pride. And so that's another example of a second order effect where the policy, you could analyze the border dispute without bringing up COVID-19. But once you start looking into it, you realize the reason why it flared up was because of COVID-19. And those are the effects that, even though I bring up those two examples, much like how you said with first order effects, second order effects have been around for a long time. Uh, this is why, in many ways, second order effects, and I bring this up in the thread, perfectly capture a concept that Bob Cohane and Joseph Nye brought up in the 1970s, which was complex interdependence. And they said that they're really to think about the global system, you have to think about complex interdependence, which is it can make it hard to set a hard, it can make it difficult to set a hard hierarchy of issues. To say, well, this is a security issue, and we can ignore this other issue. Well, under complex interdependence, it's hard to do that, just like with the case of India and China standoff. And you sit there and say, well, there's a national security issue of border security and border integrity. And then there's pandemic stuff and there's health issues. But in this case, the two things become so intertwined and the global fallout from them become so acute that you can't really understand one issue without looking at what might be considered a lower issue. And so that's the idea behind complex interdependence. And as I said, Cohen and, uh, and I brought this up back in the 1970s. This is really the way to be thinking about the global system. Recently, President Trump's administration has suddenly turned around and, and started pointing to China's nuclear arsenal, which frankly isn't big. I mean, it's potent, but it's not big. Is that just trying to draw Russia into turning against China in some way? The nuclear issue, you know, in some ways, the, the whole dispute about arms control and about New start and whether the U.S. should have an agreement that's just with Russia or should they bring in China? Should it be comprehensive? On the one hand, this has been going on well before COVID-19. This was going on, you know, the U.S. had withdrawn from the INF treaty uh, well before. So the issue of arms control and especially as it applies to nuclear weapons and the relations between Russia, China, and the U.S. with regard to nuclear weapons was going on prior to COVID-19. Now, what's interesting about your question is you could kind of bring it back to what I was just talking about. You could say, is the desire to put this back on the table and to have these talks again, is this another form of second-order effect? Is this another form of, well, maybe if we can reach an agreement on this issue, It'll be a way of, and, and from the perspective of the Trump administration, it's a way to regain some credibility, maybe even with my domestic audience. Joe, look, I'm someone who can get stuff done because you all are so upset about what's been happening with COVID-19. And so for me, I think one of the reasons why suddenly these talks and the prospects of these talks have come back onto the table 
whereas they were a little bit dormant for a while, they were a little bit dormant for a while, is you could make the argument that this is yet another thing that the Trump administration is trying to put out there to, again, not necessarily distract from COVID-19, but to make it, you know, to kind of as a way to kind of, maybe this is something we could rebuild our credibility on this issue. Uh, you know, other examples of this is people are talking about, well, suddenly now Iran is back in the news, right? And U.S. policy towards Iran uh, is that, now part of that is Iran itself. They just, the other day, <laughs> just uh, uh, issued a warrant for the arrest of President Trump. Um, but part of this also could be, you know, are all these other foreign policy issues suddenly coming back up at, because of the fact that the U.S., in particular the Trump administration, is looking for, quote, wins, looking for things that they can do to try to reestablish credibility. A third example of this would be the recent announcement about German troops going to Poland. It's like, why suddenly is that back on the table? That was like a big reaction to it. Like, why are we suddenly talking about this? And you could say that it's just, well, it's just undisciplined messaging and they're just jumping from one issue to the other. Or it could be, here is another thing that Trump could point to and say, no, look, this is the kind of stuff that you voted for me to do, and I can still do this. So don't be too mad about COVID-19. So for me, I view all of these issues right now, because you're seeing all of them being brought on the table. I view this as potentially another second order effect of COVID-19. Let's get all this stuff on the table, not so much as a form of distraction, but maybe some of these things will hit, and that can be a way for us to regain some reputational credibility with our base. It's a bit hard to gain reputational credibility using Russia as a partner against a, a, another power when you've also got information coming out about Russia seeking to reward killings of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. This is something that we're going to be seeing unfolding. We might be talking about this again at the next podcast. Uh, things could be totally different by then, that this, uh, this bounty... Uh, controversy that's come up, and in particular, when did the Trump administration know about it, uh, and why didn't they choose to do anything about it? And this is something, this is kind of the opposite, if you will, of the things I was just talking about, whereas there are all these other things that the Trump administration would like to get out in the open. Hey, we can be tough on Iran. Hey, we're tough on NATO allies who free ride. Hey, we can go ahead and reach an arms agreement with these major powers on nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Those are things that they would like to pursue. Then there's this whole, like, oh, wait, we weren't protecting our troops adequately in Afghanistan. That's something they were trying to not have brought up. Hence the whole, like, well, you know, the president hasn't been briefed on this, or no, that wasn't really what was happening, and even the Russian government denying it. So this is the kind of thing that could really start to spiral. It's like when you already have people upset over the response to COVID-19, and you have in particular, you know, if we want to start really diving into the domestic politics of it, you have a lot of members of the Republican Party who are on board with Trump, who have supported Trump, despite missteps and mishaps with COVID-19. A lot of these people, though, I'm thinking of like Lindsey Graham being a good example. They're very hawkish on Russia. And I, I would be, I'm going to be watching very closely how those Republican senators respond to this, because this is kind of like crossing the Rubicon for them. And it's like, wait, if you knew that Russia was doing this and you did nothing, that's unacceptable. 
And so that's something that I, again, I don't have any answers to that right now, but boy, that's an issue that the Trump administration would really like to distract people. With all these distractions, all these different points that they're trying to put, all the confusion, will President Trump be cancelling the next election? A colleague of mine once said that when the U.S. has an election, we don't have one election. We have 51 elections. We have, and actually more than that if you count the other territories. So, meaning that the elections are carried out by the U.S. state. And so that is both something that makes it hard to manipulate the election results because it is not centralized in its control, but would also make it very hard to have some sort of policy come out and say, we're canceling this, because you could see where a lot of states would have a lot of pushback on that. So no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think there's other things that could happen before then, but I don't think a canceling of the election is on the table. Um, at least that's my view of it. I know there's some people worried about that, but I, my view of it is that of the things we could be worried about, that one is not the one. There's quite a few folks in Europe at the moment that I've been talking to in different areas of Europe that are expecting that uh, America, by the time you come for your election, is going to be embarking on a civil war. Yeah, that's also something that I, I'm not as concerned about. Uh, I think that there could be other forms of domestic unrest, uh, which we've been seeing, right, with protests, concerns about police brutality, actual realization of police brutality. Those things I think we can see. Breakout of civil war, I don't see that happening, largely because, and we don't have time to go into it right now on the podcast, but you know the dynamics of how the U.S. system looks now compared to how it looked, say, when we actually did have a civil war, I think are very different. Um, but yeah, I think domestic unrest, absolutely. Uh, seeing some violence, yes. Seeing even potential for some violence around the election time, possibly. But full-fledged civil war, no, I'm not as concerned about that. One of the things that's, if we go back to your first and second order effects, Europeans are saying they don't want Americans to come to Europe right now. Are they being fair? I think they're being totally fair. Yeah, your, your, your question is in reference to something that is, you, you could almost say is even a third order effect, right? That if, um, uh, that because you enact this policy to stop immigration into the U.S., and then that in turn leads other countries to respond to that. In this case, the EU saying, uh, putting travel restrictions, saying you know, from the United States, there's going to be restrictions on people being able to enter the EU. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable right now. I mean, look, we're looking at the numbers here in the U.S., and I think it's important to keep in mind I think it is important to kind of look deeper into the numbers. I know people like to show the overall number of like cases in the U.S. or the overall number of deaths in the U.S., but the U.S. is such a large country, and the response to it has been so diffuse. It's been very localized at the state level, at the city level. So, for example, if you look at Chicago, well, Chicago, the curve looks very much like how it looks in a lot of European countries. You know, had the spike, it's come down. The number of new cases a day has now been holding steady at about 200, um, and the number of deaths almost dropped to zero. So it's like, you know, Chicago looks a lot like how you want that curve to look. Same thing with New York. And of course, New York City had a huge spike, but it's come back down. 
Um, and then in turn, New York and New Jersey as states have had similar patterns. But then you go down to the southern states and you're seeing a very different pattern. So in that sense, it, it makes sense. Uh, in that way, I guess I would say it makes sense why the Europeans are responding the way they are. They're seeing the overall number. But I think it is important to recognize that within the U.S. you have cities and states that look a lot that, well, let's be honest, population-wise are the same size as some of these European countries. And their response to it and the results from it have been very similar to those countries. And then there's other states where that has not been the case at all, Florida, Texas, Arizona being probably the most prominent examples right now. That was interesting that you almost seem to think that the EU response was a tit for tat, whereas living in Europe, we like Americans coming here, we love you bringing your money over, we love you sp you know, wandering around Paris and chucking money into the French economy. The reality is that we're just crawling out of tentatively crawling out of a lockdown situation. We're not even sure we're out of it. It's like we're opening bit by bit by bit. And some people who have pre-existing conditions still are not allowed to get there. They're looking at September before they're allowed to go out. So I think it's more a case that we don't really understand it, but we certainly know it will make it worse if you start shipping people in. Yes, and especially people from a country where you're seeing the number of cases going up. And it's hard to control that, you know, because going back to what I was just saying, on the one hand, if you could sit there and say, okay, you're coming from Texas, therefore you're not allowed in, but you're coming from Chicago, therefore you're, you're allowed in. But the problem is, is people transfer flights and, you know, if you're flying from O'Hare to Charles de Gaulle, it's like, well, but you probably connected, you know, you may have flown up from Oklahoma City to O'Hare and now you're coming. So it's, it's yeah, it, it's just you're better off to just say, we're not gonna allow people in until you know, things get under control in the US because we are concerned about our own situation. So I think there is truth to that. I think it's not, I think you're right. It's maybe, not, it, it wouldn't be fair to fully say it's a tip. Having said that, the, the reality is the announcement of EU policy came after Trump said that we were gonna do it. So it, you know, the perception of a tit for tat is very much, I think, on the table. When you look at these complex interdependencies, they can't be broken down to tweets. It, it takes relationships, and relationships require trust, and it takes time to build that trust. How do we do that in a post-pandemic world when it was hard enough before COVID-19 to get any cooperation? This is a fair question, and this goes back to something that we've talked about before in the podcast about does COVID-19 mark kind of a shift in the international system? And your question, the way it was phrased, would suggest that it has. And it's like, okay, international cooperation was already difficult prior to it, but now it's going to be even harder because of what we've witnessed with COVID-19. I don't think that's the case. I don't think I, and I don't think this is the case because I believe COVID-19 is going to make us stronger and more aware, more resilient, and so forth. Though I think it has revealed uh, the importance of being diligent. Uh, it'll be interesting, for example, to follow the latest reports out of China about a new type of flu strain that's tied to pigs. And it'll be interesting to see if people who previously were very skeptical of the WHO are now suddenly like, hey, yeah, WHO, make sure you get on that, right? You know, because of lessons learned from, from COVID. So I think there are, it will be interesting, you could see some people actually say, no, this has revealed the importance of this type of cooperation. But having said that, I mean, look, international cooperation is just difficult. It's the other Cohen, the Bob and Bob, Cohen and Axelrod, 
cooperation under anarchy is difficult. Always has been and always will be as long as you have an anarchy system. So I don't think COVID-19 is going to make it any more difficult. I think COVID-19, at least from my perspective, has just made people very aware of how difficult it actually is. And as people go back and look, they see, oh, yeah, I guess cooperation does typically break down. It's just it's so salient now because the results are so real to people. You know, this isn't some abstract like arms control agreement over uh, nuclear weapons that no one can see because they're in silos. This is cooperation or a lack of cooperation over a virus that's keeping me in my home, preventing my kids from going to school. And that's very real to people. I think that's what the pandemic has done is shown and made very clear how difficult international cooperation is and what the consequences of that difficulty are.